When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today is mini episode number eight, all about the cognitive bias called the hot-cold empathy gap. You may be thinking to yourself, Grace, does this mean that when I feel hot or cold, I have trouble having empathy? you may be close. It's right there in the title. But this actually refers to hot or cold states or visceral drives and the influence that those states can have on one's ability to have empathy and to make decisions regarding themselves. Essentially, this cognitive bias is when people underestimate the influence of a visceral drive, which includes things like physical states, hunger, thirst, substance cravings, etc., that effect that those things have on someone's own thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. When someone is in a really intense state, such as very angry or very hungry, it is almost near impossible for that person to imagine what it would be like to be in the opposite, such as very calm or very full, or to imagine that this feeling will fade. And that is where the empathy gap comes in. So think of the last time that you were hangry and maybe something is happening at your work or at your home with a friend and you're getting really frustrated with them and all you can think about is, I'm so starving, like I'm so hungry that I feel like I'm going to pass out and I'm so irritated with this person. I will never stop being irritated with them. Everything that they do is annoying to me and... Uh, I will never get enough food into me (laughs) to feel full. That's kind of like a double visceral drive, right? The hunger and the anger. In that moment, we have a lot of difficulty reminding ourselves or imagining that we are not always this hungry or this angry and that our friend is not always this irritating or that our, you know, our work situation or our home situation is not always this frustrating to us. In that moment, we have difficulty essentially taking a different perspective. And that's what empathy is all about, is being able to take a different perspective, whether you're applying it to yourself or to other people. And so that is where the gap comes in, is that when we are in one of these states, it's really hard for us to imagine what it's like to be in an opposite state. And it goes the other way, where if you're not hungry and you're not angry, it's hard to understand what it feels like to be that angry or to remember like how that influences your behavior. Now, I think I've mentioned that this on the podcast before, but if anyone is ever familiar with the acronym HALT, which is uh, pretty popular in like CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Based Therapy, HALT stands for Hungry, Angry, Lonely, Tired. And when you're working with HALT or the skills around HALT, essentially you're doing a quick check-in with yourself to be like, am I hungry? Am I angry? And am I lonely? And am I tired? And if any of those needs need to be met, then it could be likely that once you meet that need, the distress that you're feeling, 
could go down a little bit or you might be able to kind of pull yourself together uh, a little bit more than you had before. So that's really similar to this idea of this empathy gap is that when we're halting, right, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, those are just kind of like the four main categories. We can see how a lot of things would fall under that. When we're halting, we're unable to imagine the future as getting better (laughs) and feel like the situation that we're in is going to be what it's like forever. The reason why I want to talk about this is because it's a cognitive bias, which means as human beings with brains, we are very susceptible to this kind of type of bias. And I think understanding how these empathy gaps or the halting stuff works can really be beneficial to you in the future when you're going through a, a difficult situation or when you're dealing with someone who's kind of in one of these high arousal states or these visceral drives, right? Because it, it goes both ways. Um, as always, this is not uh, specific mental health advice. Always work with your uh, clinician, your therapist, your provider, whoever you're working with uh, around your own specific issues and treatment needs. But I think in general, this is a really interesting cognitive bias to learn about and can be tied into a lot of skills that you may learn um, in your individual or group therapy or whatever type of treatment that you may find yourself in. So the hot cold empathy gap has five like subtypes or categories to it. The first is hot to cold, which is like the example I gave of being very, very hangry. <laughs> this is where when we're under the influence of one of these visceral drives, it feels like it will never end. And our main focuses are on meeting the need of the drive. So the visceral drive is changing our behavior, or not changing, but influencing our behavior in that we are now going to maybe stop pursuing other goals and move toward the pursuit of just making sure I get food uh, or just making sure I get revenge on whoever I'm angry at because that is the visceral drive that's pushing me at the moment. Then there's cold to hot, which is when we're not under the influence of a visceral drive, we may not be able to imagine how powerful that drive could be in the future. Uh, and essentially, we're unprepared for the strength of the impulse. So let's say, you know, you're listening to this right now and you're not halting. You're not, you just ate. You're not upset with anybody. You're not lonely because you know you're listening along with other people and you've got a good night's sleep. So you're not tired. So you're cold right now. You're in that cold state. These visual drives are not coming up for you. Try to think about what you would do in the future if you got cut off on the freeway. This is, I I think, a good one because road rage just can really jump out of people. (laughs) So you're right now we're cold. We're cool. We're chilling. We're not having any of these visceral drives. How would you react or imagine yourself to react if someone were to cut you off on the freeway without uh, signaling or and they make you like slam on your brakes and almost crash your car? In the cold state, we may be more likely to say, I would be fine. I would handle it. I, you know, I would be safe. I would have already been driving in a way that made sure there was enough room for me to stop. I might even change lanes um, and make sure that I'm getting away from this dangerous driver. The reality is, is that in that moment, you probably would some of your ranks honk your horn, maybe scream some inappropriate words and really like there's a potential for you to fly off the handle in that specific situation. Obviously, not everybody will react in the same way, but it's possible that in that situation, you would be in a hot stage, right? You would kind of jump into that visceral drive state. Uh, But right now, when we're in a cold state, we can't really imagine what that would be like or how that would play out for us. So that's the, the cold to hot. There's also a empathy gap 
that's called intrapersonal prospective. So intrapersonal means within yourself and prospective means into the future. So this is essentially an inability to predict future behavior in a different state. For example, uh, I'm angry right now. So if I were to be in this situation again, I will act the same way every time. So whatever state I'm in, in the situation I go through, I'm imagining that I will always be in that state every time I encounter the same situation or similar situations. Then there's intrapersonal retrospective, which again is about yourself, but in the past. And this is a gap that comes up when we're trying to remember behaviors that happened in a different state. So for example, I am calm right now. So why did I act like that in the past? What was I thinking when I was angry? Like almost trying to rationalize your behavior in the past because you're no longer in that visceral state. I'm using anger as my main example because I think that's a little more understandable or accessible uh, because at least in my experience, when people are experiencing anger, it can have a pretty profound impact on their behavior. But again, this empathy gap or this cognitive bias applies to any visceral or arousal state that uh, somebody could be in. So when you're really thirsty, it can influence your behavior. Um, When you're having a craving for something like a substance or for a piece of chocolate, that is one of those visceral uh, states as well. Um, They even talk about like physical arousal, like maybe your heart rate has gone up or you're like really sweaty. Like that also is a visceral drive. But I think the anger one is just easier for right now. Um, But I want you to know that it's not only does this empathy gap or cognitive bias come up when people are angry. It's any of these like very strong emotional states or physical visceral states. Okay. And then the last one for the subtypes is called interpersonal. And this is where we're trying to understand other people who are in different states than we are. So for example, this person is so sad over the situation that we're in. I just don't get it. I'm not sad about it. And it can be hard to take the perspective of someone who is really having a reaction to the same situation that you're in. But maybe the reality is, is that other person is starving or thirsty or already had a pretty intense emotions in the beginning part of the day that you weren't around for. It's hard for us to understand that anything else could be motivating how this person is having an emotional reaction to a situation that we are not reacting to. And I think this is really related to some other cognitive biases that I will probably do many episodes on later, but things like a fundamental attribution error uh, where we attribute like nefarious or purposeful motivations to people for their behaviors when we don't do that for ourselves. Like I think with this interpersonal empathy gap, we struggle to see like someone could be having a reaction because they're in a different physical state than we are. And we just see it kind of their reaction on the surface or the face value level of it and have that difficulty with perspective taking. It's hard to do, right? It's hard to imagine all of the other factors going on for that person because we don't know them, right? They, they may not be visible at the surface. They may not be uh, something the person can even communicate in the moment. And because we are not currently experiencing them, it's, it's confusing and it's difficult for us to take the perspective. And I, I highlight that in that, I, I think especially like in relationships, whether it's with friends, partners, family, whoever, sometimes we get into fights with people or we get into conflict and the other person may be really upset and we're like, what is what is happening? Like, this isn't a, a big deal or this shouldn't be an issue at all. And the person that you're 
in this conflict with who's having the reaction, they may have other things going on that's influencing their behavior or their emotional reaction or even their cognitive reaction to things like the the way they're thinking about the situation. It doesn't make you a bad partner or a bad friend or a bad family member if you don't know all of that that's going on. It's just part of this cognitive bias. But whenever we learn about a cognitive bias and we know more about what could be happening in our brain when we enter into situations, then we can be more prepared for it in the future. So next time after you've learned about this cognitive bias, next time you're, let's say, in a fight with your partner and they're really upset and you can't quite figure it out, you can pause, have the knowledge of like, oh, they may be halting, they may be hungry, angry, lonely, tired, they may have some other need that needs to be met that is influencing their reaction to the situation. And I'm having um, a different reaction because I'm not in the same like physiological state as they are, right? It can really help you to turn around a, a, a situation. Now, I'm not recommending to, if your partner is upset, you just totally derail the conversation and be like, you should go get a snack because I don't think that's going to go over well when the person is already upset. But it can help you understand and maybe ask the person if there's any needs they have Um, that need to be met before we continue this conversation or giving them an opportunity to take a break, slow down, go meet those needs for themselves before we continue this difficult conversation. And so essentially, all of these subtypes, whether it's hot to cold within ourselves or between people, they all boil down to the same general idea. There's a disruption in our ability to have empathy for others or for ourselves. So We've learned about the cognitive bias, all the different parts of it. How does that impact our reality, right? Our our lived experience. I gave you the example of like getting into conflict with people in your relation that you're in relationships with. Um, but I want to highlight this article by George Lowenstein that was published in the Journal of Health Psychology in 2005, and it's about hot and cold empathy gaps and medical decision making. Now Lowenstein seems to be one of the like forefronts of this literature on the hot cold empathy gap. He's published a lot of stuff about this particular cognitive bias and the effects that it has. But this one is specifically about medical decision making. And here I go throwing it back to abortion once again. (laughs) This is all about how this bias may get in the way of how we make decisions for ourselves in regards to our medical care and how we may have difficulty understanding why other people make medical decisions for themselves. If you haven't heard the first episode I did where I talk about Roe v. Wade, which is abortion in movies, um, it is episode 38 if you want to go back and listen to it. But I reiterated that abortion is healthcare, So I think that this applies because we're talking about medical decision making. Now, Lowenstein does not talk about abortion specifically, but here I am creating a wedge to put my foot in the door to remind you of this very important issue and that uh, limiting access to people's ability to make healthcare decisions for themselves um, is never good. Okay, Lovenstein does this research where he is looking at the different drives behind the hot-cold empathy gap. And this article specifically is more of a meta-analysis where he or a lit review where he's looking at other studies and the different types of drives and distilling their results down to uh, make his conclusion. So he looks at several articles. The first one is about addiction. Um, so it's it was a study where people who were on essentially methadone, like a maintenance drug for opioid use disorder, people who were on that disorder were given two choices. Uh, you could come in for treatment and your next treatment uh, appointment and either get an extra dose of the methadone 
or get like $10. You could choose an extra pill or or 10 bucks. And they gave some of the people that option before they got their methadone dose for the day or the other group was after. And they wanted to see if if you were in this like state of deprivation because before someone takes their methadone they're going to be at their like peak craving between doses. They're going to be at their most um like susceptible to the cravings and the uh, withdrawal symptoms of opioid use. If we're in this like visceral drive of craving or withdrawal symptoms from a substance, does that change the decision that someone would make about what they would get next time they come to treatment? And that study found that participants who had already been given their methadone, so they were no longer experiencing cravings, uh, valued the extra dose as much lower. And those who were before they got their methadone, so they were craving, valued their methadone as much higher. And this tracks with the empathy gap in that in the moment when I am craving methadone, I imagine that in the future I'm going to want more of it, like I'm going to want the extra dose, versus when I'm not, if I'm in my current state that's not craving the methadone, I'm not going to imagine my future self as having that bout of craving, so I might not take the extra dose. I would take the money. Lowenstein also reviews an article that uh, he helped write, um, which was about the role that thirst has on the hot-cold empathy gap. And that study, they interviewed people or surveyed people at a gym and like told them this story about hikers and then asked them to write an essay about the hikers on the like story they were in. So people who were asked to write their story before they worked out, so when they probably weren't as thirsty because they haven't been sweating as much, they were less likely to mention thirst as a concern for the hikers in the story. And those who had finished their workout and then were writing the story were more likely to mention thirst as a concern for the hikers. So predicting that because I'm currently feeling thirsty, this other person would be feeling thirsty as well. And Lowenstein talks about how when we're trying to be empathetic with people, first we predict how we would react in the situation and then try to take the other person's perspective. And that's why we can have this like mismatch in the empathy gap because when we are trying to take the perspective of the other person, we're starting from ourselves and so starting from whatever state we are in. And that was demonstrated in the thirst study in that the people who were thirsty imagine the people in the story to be thirsty and those who were not thirsty did not imagine the people in the story to be thirsty. He also reviews an article about pain and about fear. Both of those also had evidence of the hot cold empathy gap. Uh, I have sourced the article on the website if you want to read it for yourself and learn more about those of the specifics of the experiments that he reviewed. Um, The article is available on Google Scholar. So what does this mean? Right. So Lowenstein went through all of this and then writes about like, what does it mean about health, healthcare and medical decisions? So from the cold to hot empathy gap, the issue may be that people fail to make changes to adopt a healthy long-term lifestyle. So things like taking a multivitamin, getting preventative tests or routine medical tests. So when we're not sick, we have a hard time imagining we're going to be sick in the future. So that's the cold. We're not sick at the time. And the hot would be sick in the future. Cold's a hot interpersonal empathy gap. So the one where we're having empathy for other people outside of ourselves. Decrease for sick people. 
So if you're not sick, you may have less empathy for sick people. And maybe the reason why doctors administer too little pain medication in certain situations. Now, I do want to note here that there is extensive research on the bias in the medical field toward people of color, particularly black people, and the assumption that black people feel pain less severely uh, or need a higher amount of pain to hit a tolerance threshold and so are less likely to prescribe pain medications or pain management for those racial groups or ethnic groups. And that has really big consequences for healthcare outcomes and also contributes to the very high rate of Black mortality in um, childbirth. So the hot-cold empathy gap or cold-to-hot empathy gap isn't the only explanation. There are other explanations for why medical professionals may make decisions for patients that are not always what is in the best interest of the patient. Um, There are other factors that influence that, but this empathy gap is definitely at play in those situations as well. So Lowenstein is saying for the doctor, it's hard to imagine what the person coming to see them is feeling because the doctor is not sick or in pain at the moment. And then for the patient, when we're not sick, we're not in pain, we have a hard time imagining our future, right? That would be the prospective, intrapersonal prospective empathy gap. Um, we have a hard time making decisions in the short term that are going to benefit our health in the long term because we don't feel sick right now. And scene also talks about how this um, cold to hot gap may make end of life decisions really difficult. We, in our current state of maybe not being in a terminal illness or the amount of pain that comes with a terminal illness, we may not be able to imagine what we want. Like, would we want to be resuscitated or not? Would we want certain um, medical interventions that may not work for us? Um, we We don't know because we're not in that state right now and it may be hard to think into the future. And so Lowenstein argues that there may be situations in where the patient is not in the best position to be making their decision and the physician or the provider um, may know more and may be able to be a little more objective in the decision making based on the state in which the patient is in. And I think we've seen a really clear example of that in the last few years with the vaccine stuff. Uh, I have some episodes about this. The conspiratorial thinking episode talks about vaccine hesitancy and conspiracy theories around vaccines. So check that out if you want more information about that. Um, But I think the empathy gap comes into play in where public health officials come out and say, you got to get this vaccine. It will prevent you from getting COVID. It's the best health decision for you to make right now. Go for it. Like we, we approve, we support this. And then People have concerns or maybe they are in fearful arousal states because the pandemic is very scary and people are dying and getting sick or people are afraid because they think their rights are being taken away. Either way, the baseline is a fearful arousal state may push people into making decisions that they wouldn't have made in a different uh, arousal state. So, for example, saying I'm never going to get this vaccine because COVID is a hoax and I'll never get it. And then, you know, three months later, you get that person gets COVID and ends up in the ICU. Right. At the time, the decision to not get vaccinated seemed to be the informed decision that they wanted to make for themselves. Uh, But they were making it from a place of hot, right, hot arousal state and not being able to think through to the future of what could happen if I were to get sick. And 
something that, and this is just anecdotal things that I noticed, but a lot of stuff that you'd see online from the vaccine hesitant were like, why are public health and, you know, why is Dr. Fauci pushing this? Like people being suspicious of authority figures pushing, quote unquote, pushing an agenda. And I think that is where I would disagree with Lowenstein's theory about physicians making decisions for patients based on like the the cold to hot not being in that state and having more information because people react very poorly to being told what to do specifically people in America <laughs> it might be different in other cultures but specifically here in America being told that you have to do this puts people off may you know throw their hackle their ha- what is that word their hackles throw their hackles up you know like a dog an angry dog <laughs> throw the back themselves up into a corner, feel upset, and now they're in a a visceral drive, right? A visceral state of like anger, fear, you know, whatever is associated with that. So I think that 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 can backfire. That's sort of like authoritarian perspective. Now, on the other hand, like we've learned in the conspiratorial thinking episodes, having authority figures that have transparency and are able to admit when they don't know something can combat that, right? Can kind of help people to calm down and accept the information coming from the authority figure. I'm not going to do another episode right now about vaccine hesitancy, but I just think that that is a really clear example in the recent current events um, about how this like cold to hot empathy gap and hot to cold empathy gap can work in that in the moment we can't imagine why something would be important. And when we're having a reaction to like being told what to do, it influences your behavior. That's that's the influence of the behavior, right? You're making a health decision that you wouldn't have made um, in a different state. And lastly, Lowenstein argues that the hot-cold empathy gaps um, may highlight limitations in informed consent. So if you'll remember from previous episodes, informed consent is this idea that you, as the patient, are entering into an agreement to have treatment or an intervention or a medication provided to you and you understand the risks and the benefits of both engaging in the treatment or refusing the treatment. That's the the backside of informed consent is what will happen if you, what could happen to you if you refuse the treatment. And so Lowenstein is basically saying like, with this understanding of the hot, cold empathy gap, it may be difficult for patients to understand how a procedure might affect them. So, for example, if a doctor is telling a patient, you're going to have to have a colostomy, which is where, you know, part of your colon is going to be diverted to um, uh, like essentially a hole in your abdomen. Uh, pa- a doctor is telling a patient that a patient may be able to cognitively and abstractly understand like, yes, a piece of my colon is going to be diverted to protect my body and remove the damaged part of my colon and consent under the idea of like, I understand the procedure and the consequences. But the reality is, is that the patient in that moment is in a cold state, right? They're, they're maybe not, they're not in the arousal that they may be in after having a colostomy and it, and may not be able to imagine that in the future, like, there could be pain associated with this. There is, There could be fear associated with this of like, what does this mean for my health after the uh, procedure has been done? Um, there could even be like impacts on your physiological state, like hunger and thirst because something has changed in your body. Before the procedure, the person is in the cold state. They don't quite know what it's going to look like in the future and can't imagine their 
emotional reaction to the procedure. So that is an aspect of informed consent that may be missing. From a mental health perspective, this makes me think of things like voluntary or involuntary psychiatric hospitalization. So this happens when the person or the patient is determined to be a danger to themselves or a danger to others. So danger to themselves may mean one imminent threat of attempting suicide or um, something that in California is called gravely disabled, where the person is unable to meet their needs. So a danger to themselves and like they're not eating, sleeping, participating in hygiene. And then danger to others would be there's an imminent risk that the person is going to harm or attempt to kill another person. So an identified threat against someone else. So in those cases, the providers, the clinicians working with that person um, may suggest you can go to the hospital and you know go to the emergency room and say, this is what's happening and check you in. or you know, we can do the involuntary process and they write a hold. The person is escorted to the hospital and held for 72 hours for observation and treatment. I would imagine that if you're not in an immediate state of wanting to hurt yourself or somebody else, it could be hard to imagine why someone would volunteer to submit themselves to a hospital to be held for 72 hours at a minimum. Well, if it's voluntary, you can check out sooner but let's just say 72 hours right to right now and we're in a space where we're not thinking about wanting to kill ourselves or somebody else why would somebody do that to go to a hospital give up your freedom to be stuck in a hospital which many people don't like to be there we may have trouble understanding why someone make that decision but a person who is in that stage may also have trouble making the decision about what is their best care so If somebody is actively thinking about, I'm going to take my own life right now, I have a plan, I have access, I have means, and the the clinician determines like, we need to go to the hospital so that we can help you stay safe and get you the treatment that you need. Um, The person may not in that moment be able to think through like, in the future, I'm going to like maybe be happy that I haven't, uh, that I wasn't in danger, that I got the treatment I needed, Um, or think through the consequences of what that would look through for their life. Because in the moment, they're focused on, I am in so much distress that this is the option for me and the plan that I'm thinking through of taking my own life. So it goes both ways, right? We may, we may have trouble thinking about both. And is it possible that those empathy gaps interfere with informed consent at the time of, for either the person in the hot stage or the person in the cold stage? Can we truly, truly give informed consent when we are not able to think through to the future of what our decisions mean? Now, I am going to interpret this as a philosophical question (laughs) and say that although I think there are instances when people do not get to give informed consent, and like we talked about in the Our Father episode, right, the women in that documentary did not give informed consent to the procedure that was ultimately done on them. Uh, I think that this idea that the hot, cold empathy gap restricts someone's ability to make their own decisions to the point where they're no longer making informed consent maybe a bit of an extrapolation of this cognitive bias. Sure, there are always going to be things that are out of our control in the future, things that we can't account for. But what we can do is in the moment that we are in with the information that we have is make the best decision that we can for ourselves. So one way, again, to (laughs) my favorite recommendation to combat this is to slow down. So let's say you're going to your provider for medical or mental health treatment and they're offering a specific type of intervention or treatment. You may feel pressure to make the decision right then because your provider, who has a sense of, uh, essentially a power over you, you may feel pressure to answer them right away. 
This is where we slow down. I would like more information about this procedure before we go forward. I would like more information about the side effects of this medication. I would like to know more about your training in this intervention before we start it together. Those are all incredibly valid questions for you to ask of your providers of either mental or physical health. And so I encourage you to, in these moments, to slow down, ask these extra questions. If you're, you know, when you go into like the doctor's office, they usually give you a form that's like, sign here to, un- to like understand your privacy rights. Maybe read that all the way through. <laughs> Maybe read the informed consent paperwork that your therapist sends you just so that you know everything that's going on and have taken the time to kind of slow down and honor your process at the moment, but to also remember the cold to hot empathy gap in that right now I may not feel in distress or feel so upset, but I could in the future. And to practice imagining that or for, you know, your the other people in your life. I'm cold right now, but my friends and family are hot. What are they going through? Okay, I got really excited about that Lowenstein article to the point where this is um, no longer a mini episode. <laughs> it's, it's starting to border on a full length episode. Um, so I'm going to end it here with my recommendations that I've always to slow down and to ask for more information from your providers before going through with a, a medical or mental health decision. Ask the questions that you need to ask to get the information that you need to make that decision. Also hold space for the empathy and the attempting to take perspectives of how you may feel in the future or how the people in your life may feel in the future. Um, With that, I just want to say thank you for listening to the entire episode. It's always lovely to have you with me to the end. Um, And I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.